You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. My name is Jira, and thanks for tuning in. With me today are crew members Grace. Hello. Sue. Hi. And Sarah. Hello. And our main topic today is your questions, listener mail. Before we get into that, though, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do. Our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to join us there and check out some of our patron-exclusive rewards, content, and polls, visit patreon.com slash womenatwarp. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash womenatwarp. And a huge thanks to all you who already support us on Patreon. We truly couldn't do this without you. We also have a tea Public store with new designs based on our new banner art, plus logos and some other non-podcast-specific Trek designs. Check that out over at tpublic.com slash stores slash women at warp. Let's get into our listener mail. Our last mailbag episode was in the before times in December 2019. But we do collect your amazing questions and comments that you send to the show via email, uh, on social media, via Patreon, and through our website. And we save them up for these episodes. So you, you may hear your question in here. So let's start out with a question from Susan via email, and I'll turn that over to Sue to read. Yeah, so Susan wrote in response to our episode on women and aging in Star Trek and said, I noticed that far too many Starfleet career tracks follow as such. Ensigns are in their 20s, lieutenants and commanders are in their 30s, captains are 40 plus, admirals are 50 plus. Yet there are simply not enough admiralties for every 50-year-old in Starfleet nor are there enough ships or space stations for every 40-year-old in Starfleet to captain. So where does everyone go? In Tapestry, we see Picard as a failure for still being a lieutenant. But is he a failure? He's working on the flagship, exploring strange new worlds, and presumably doing a job he enjoys. Many would see that as a success. Agreed. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think I have a a big problem with Tapestry for that reason. I mean, for a couple reasons. Also, the girlfriend thing is gross. For an episode that I think is is much beloved and I used to love quite a bit, I, I have really come to question that idea that, you know, serving in a lower rank position is somehow like underachieving. You're still in Starfleet. You're still, as Susan points out, doing a job you enjoy. A valuable job, like we're we're you know we're told that everyone on these crew in the crew is valuable, and I think it, that even though this is supposed to be like a post-capitalist society, it really does reflect this capitalist idea that you're supposed to try to rise to the top of whatever hierarchy you belong to. Capitalist and just generally really competitive. I mean, if we're at a point where the future of humanity is based around self-betterment. Shouldn't we be a lot cooler with the idea of, you know, this is a position where I'm happy. I'm good doing this part. And we see that often in in TNG, right? Riker brings up all the time, I want to make captain by the time I'm this age, or I want to make captain by the time I'm this age, or I was the youngest person to do this. And like, so what? (laughs) Yeah. I can't help but wonder if that's like a byproduct of this weird idea that we culturally have that competitiveness is a good quality. Well, I mean, it was also right the late 80s. Yeah. Where this mm-hmm. was very much an ideal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we can see it, the pushback, I think we can see starting in Lower Decks, right? Mariner doesn't want to mm-hmm. go anywhere. Mm-hmm. She's happy where she is. Yeah. But I, I feel like this observation also tracks to real life, right? Yeah. Like where people make a lot of assumptions based on whatever your job title is. Mm-hmm. I think that that also in tapestry, it's very also a gendered idea. Mm. And and you, I mean, I think that Susan rightly points out this applies to all genders in Star Trek in terms of the the idea that, you know, we don't see a lot of 50 year old lieutenants. But in tapestry, there's very much this idea that like, because he didn't do this risky masculine stunt, he ended up being this like, uh, underachieving namby pamby science officer. <laughs> I think that, that that's also like not super helpful. 
God, just Nambi Pambi as a descriptor for Picard is correct. <laughs> so what's, what this is also reminding me of, it's kind of funny, Grace and I play in a Star Trek Adventures game. Mm-hmm. And except for our captain, we're literally all commanders. Yeah. Because yeah. like, nobody wants to rank down. <laughs> so there's definitely every time we have, you know, our fake conference room meetings, it's commander, 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 commander. Commander. <laughs> I think also there's definitely an element of ageism and storytelling going here. Just that, mm-hmm. well, I, I'm bringing it back to, oh, it's our culture, damn it. But I do think we do have this pattern of really saying, no, we're more comfortable with thinking of older characters as the people who are retired and their main story has passed. And it feels like we really need to get over that idea and be like, no, there are older people who are having just as interesting life adventures as someone in their 20s. and. Especially if we're talking about Starfleet as being something that isn't just like an immediate track thing that everyone does in their 20s. The idea that people can change careers or decide they want to join Starfleet later on. We really got to examine that more, I feel like. Yeah, I feel like O'Brien is one of the few that we get that's older and doesn't seem to care about being a captain because he's just super down with being an engineer and obviously is is non-commissioned. And let's be real, far too traumatized to want to do anything more. Yeah. <laughs> But I think that that you're right. And I mean, I don't think that the the creators put a lot of thought into where does everyone go? I think it was more like, what do we want this to look like on screen? And, and you know, also mirroring this idea that like everyone in the academy, especially in the, the era of TNG and stuff, like everyone needs to be physically fit. Yeah. And uh, so it like it ties in with body issues and like how agent and and body image and and fitness and disability like all of this ties into this idea of like what does an ideal human like look like in the 1980s and 1990s. Mm-hmm. So yeah, complicated. Anyway, great question. So next up, we have a question from Carrie or Kari. I apologize, I'm not sure exactly uh, what the pronunciation is. Via email. Uh, Grace, do you want to take a stab at reading that one? Absolutely. Kari or Carrie, sorry, we're not sure which, wrote to us on Admiral Satie's father worship, which is a very interesting topic. I recently watched TNG episode Drumhead and was irked by how Admiral Satie constantly put herself as a product of her, quote, brilliant father, a, quote, great man. Without him, I would have been nothing, end quote. I shortly thereafter watched the DS9 episode Ties of Blood and Water and was struck by how, again, fathers or father figures were uplifted and centered. Tom Paris had a negative relationship with his father, but the father was still famous and influential in an ongoing character arc for Paris. I'm not sure we ever heard anything about Paris's mother. Are there any other mothers than Luxana Troy that are mentioned and revered as famed, powerful, and brilliant in the Trek universe? Amanda Grayson and Dr. Crusher are good examples of mothers, but I'm not sure they're mandatory reading at Starfleet Academy. And that's a really good point. I guess Lorel, aka mother? Yeah, there's mm-hmm. Lorel. I think we get at one point talking about how Jordy's mom is a big captain, mm-hmm. but that's pretty one-off, isn't it? I think that it's a lot to do with what the writer's related to, and I yeah. think that's why you'll, you'll see more mothers in the in Discovery than you did in TNG. I mean, the other father episode classic example is um, the Icarus Factor. Oh, wow. (laughs) Laughing. Never forget. And you see it, you know, in a lot of sci-fi, obviously Star Wars, that it's, it's partly to do with the issues between fathers and sons and the fact that that men are writing these shows by and large. So I think that's part of it. But in terms of like other mothers in Star Trek, yeah, like we get Worf's mom showing up really briefly. We get Bolana's mother issues, so that mm-hmm. would be another like later example of Bolana's conflict with her mother. But nobody's praised like this. Yeah. That's there's no like this my mother made me who I am is mm-hmm. never a conversation that we hear in Star Trek. Yeah, that is a great I mean, I guess Burnham's mom is I would say the closest we get to like um I mean, and Giorgio as like kind of a surrogate mother type mm-hmm. figure, but Gabrielle Burnham does get more of like a heroic persona later on challenging but yeah and and amanda i think is is a decent example she does have a lot of influence on on spock and burnham in discovery but it was actually really interesting i think sue you probably read it as well that that fact tracks transcript of that 
interview or like a, yeah. um, it was a 19. So the fact tracks posted on Twitter and we re- retweeted. There was a um, 1972 convention panel with, I was like, emceed by Isaac Asimov and had Major Barrett and DC Fontana on it. And there was a point where like someone in the audience asked like, what does Sarek see in Amanda anyway? <laughs> I, I think I think DC Fontana was like, I think she like, what does Amanda see in Sarek? Yeah. <laughs> For nice. real. But yeah, it does kind of speak to that idea that like mothers are are like caregivers and that's somehow like not as heroic. Mothers are caregivers and fathers are heroes. Yeah. And that's how the story we keep getting told. And apparently caregivers can't be heroes. Evidently. Interesting double standard there. Mm. So I'll uh, take the next question, um, which was a, a more of a comment on our uh, watch along on Star Trek Nemesis. And we had a comment that we thought was important to share from a, a rape survivor who self-identifies as a, a rape survivor, who said that they were concerned by the way that we talked about the the second part of so you know in nemesis we talked about troy's sexual assault and how that was very disturbing and then we also talked about the part where she kind of gets vengeance on the on shinzon but and like calls out you know remember me uh shinzon and the viceroy when she's directing the like missile towards the ship at the end and the i think you know we had a lot of problems with nemesis so the listener felt that that we should have been more attentive to the perspectives of actual survivors who said that that re- kind of moment of redemption or uh, not redemption, but, you know, um, revenge or, you know, just seeking justice was really important and powerful. So the the commenter said, did the movie need the rape? No, but it did need the remember me once it had the rape, because without that, you just leave Troy as an object to be used and we pass over her trauma again. At least this time, it addressed it in some way. So very valid point, And we appreciated uh, the outreach on that. It's just a fair point. Yeah. Next up, um, Sarah, do you want to read the next question from Claire on Facebook? Sure. So Claire wrote to us about Odo getting a pass for working with the Cardassians. She said, I've only recently stumbled onto your podcast, and I'm enjoying discovering all the great topics you cover. I just listened to your episode on Odo, and I was super surprised that the subject of Odo as a Cardassian collaborator never came up. That always seemed like such a big plot hole that Kira always gave him a pass for working with the Cardassians when she was so harsh with others on that topic. Would love to hear you guys discuss that aspect. Love the show and look forward to hearing more. Thanks, Claire. Also a really good point. Yeah, I I definitely have had that thought before about, you know, why did no one seem to have an issue with it? I think that part of it is that he's not a Bajoran, so this idea that He's like, he wasn't collaborating about, uh, on the oppression of his own people, like, whereas Kira seems to have this particular um, rage towards Bajorans who were collaborators. Also, he was a, a goo puddle at the beginning of the occupation. Like, he he had no consciousness and was, like, very trained into this order. But yeah, I mean, still, like, it it does invite questions about what is his culpability here. And, like, he he, as a character, kind of presents himself as... Or, you know, we're we're told to appreciate him as someone who just cares about the law and about justice, no matter who is in charge. But like, micro justice, obviously, because if you care about macro justice, then the entire occupation is unjust. I think we also get several storylines where we learn more about Odo's history. And he was also being subjugated by the Cardassians, not to the extent of the Bajoran people, of course, but... Like, he was paraded around and made to do his Cardassian neck trick. And, you know, so is yes, he was a collaborator, but I don't think he had that much choice. I'm not sure if that's the right way to put it. But I like he he was in their labs and he was labeled by Cardassian scientists. And it's it's not as if he was in an outside position and came in and helped the Cardassians, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And as the next comment points out, which we'll get to, he's also like an abuse, uh, you know, someone who has been the subject of abuse. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not like he had really a choice whether or not, like he, he, he you know, could have maybe said, I'm just not going to participate. But who knows what would have happened then? Right. I mean, he could have made the choice to leave, mm-hmm. but I don't think he could have 
stayed on Deep Space Nine without yeah. cooperating. Yeah, exactly. Especially because he, as a changeling or shapeshifter, you know, he was kind of an implicit threat. Do you still get that episode, though, where you have Odo had kind of flashing back to being like, no, I definitely was complicit at least this one time in terrorizing the Bajoran people. And that's supposed to sort of be our like glimpse into, oh, this is the path that Odo could have taken. And but it's sort of used as this redemptive moment of, but it didn't. But there was that one time. And it makes you kind of have to ask, okay, but there was that one time. You also have to question, well, for example, Quark was there at the same time. And we find out at one point that Quark secretly helped the Bajorans under the table. Mm. Probably not yeah. out of any, like, you know, moral reasons, probably just to make some cash. But he yeah. he was helping the people who were being oppressed and Odo was not. And I think that has a lot to do with Quark having a lot more moral relativity and Odo seeing everything in terms of black and white. Mm. Mm. Odo, we also learn, like, shields Kira a bit from the Cardassians. Because he's in love with her. <laughs> mm. That's a whole topic for another day, which I believe we've had questions about before and have definitely talked about on the show. That's a whole other bucket of goo to dig into. <laughs> yep. But shall we go to the next question, which is somewhat related? Um, and Sue, do you want to take a stab at reading that? Yeah. So Jane wrote to us about Dr. Mora and said, in your episode about Odo, you mentioned that Dr. Mora sucked, but I am... Sending this because I felt the magnitude of his badness was far greater than you let on. The way Dr. Mora treated and talked to Odo mirrored a lot of things my spouse's mom said to them, enough that within a few minutes I stopped the episode. I couldn't see it on their face. Dr. Mora isn't just crummy, he's downright abusive. Abusive, manipulative, narcissistic parents have a way of covering their tracks. They have a reasonable explanation for everything they do, and famously, nothing bad is ever their fault. For someone who didn't experience what it's like, it can be almost invisible. Had I not met my spouse and some friends, I don't think I'd have understood, and I would have been fooled. I've spoken with far too many people who have that experience and suspect more that haven't opened up in one way or another. On one hand, this episode could be a way of starting conversations and healing. On the other hand, it might just trigger PTSD instead. I don't have any answers. This episode has always made me so angry because he's absolutely an abuser. He tries to isolate Odo. He has all the red flags of an abuser. And then they just like reconcile without him taking any responsibility or facing any consequences. I hate that. I hate that whole thing in media where there's this constant or at least consistent thing of if your parents were shitty to you, you still have to be the bigger person. And that. Yeah. Just, uh, ugh, I hate it. I absolutely yeah. cannot stand that that being the bigger person is always portrayed as you have to let it go and be okay with some of the horrible stuff that was done to you. Mm -hmm. Especially when we do, this is such a textbook case of a parent being like a parent or a caregiver being like, well, I know you better than you know yourself mm -hmm. in a situation where like at one point we have Odo trying to explain what it's like to be a changeling and what it's like to grow up as a shapeshifter and and the doctor is like telling him how to do it. And it's like, no, I am the one who knows this experience here. Stop mm -hmm. acting like you know this better than I do. And we, we certainly, especially in our episodes on characters, have a tendency to err towards the lighter, jokier tone. But that, we, that shouldn't be an excuse for, for Dr. Moore's behavior by any means. So if it came off as if we were dismissing that, that is, was not an intention. Because you're absolutely right. Dr. Moore is horrendous abusive and manipulative and absolutely terrible to Odo. And it, it is absolutely a reflection on what some people might experience in their families. Yeah. I mean, I guess in terms of the like, what could they do differently? I think that one thing we've talked about uh, in term around sexual assault, which we haven't talked about in the case of, of something like, like parental abuse is that that some shows have explored is like, better warnings at the beginnings of the episodes versus just Netflix. Uh, you know, warning this episode contains sex and fear. <laughs> what, what is, is that what it says? For yeah, yeah, sex yeah, and fear. The, sex and the fear. Two emotions. <laughs> <laughs> and also like lists of resources at the ends of the episode. So again, like some media have done that for, for episodes about, about sexual assault, but we haven't seen that for abuse, at least not in Star Trek. And that is an area where I think they could explore 
and then I think that as uh, folks pointed out, this you know the easy reconciliation at the end is is possibly the big problem with the actual content of the episode. But then if you're going to present it, also make sure that you're attentive to the effect this could have on someone who's experienced that in their own life. I mean, I have a big problem with how they take the way he abused Odo and they use it on the other changeling and it works. Mm -hmm. And that's what they bond over. Yeah. I mean, that's like Stockholm Syndrome or something. Mm -hmm. And probably something to be said there about how a lot of people who... It, there's a consistent pattern of people who are raised in an abusive household only know how to raise their own offspring in an abusive manner. There is a perpetuated cycle that is really hard to break out of. Yeah, I'd be really curious to know if they discuss this in detail because, you know, clearly there's some parallels to the idea of like corporal punishment, which would have been a debate at the time. So I'm I'm really curious to to think if they saw what they were doing to the changeling as just like, metaphorical tough love or whether they actually saw that as physical violence and like either thing can be problematic but i'm I'm just really kind of curious about how it played out behind the scenes another one of those you gotta wonder moments all right well on to our next question grace do you want to take it it's a short and fun one yeah it's from alr stories on instagram we got this just just here in april a fun one which actress working today should get a role on star trek and why mm. Okay, I got an answer, but I don't want her to just get a role. I want her to write a whole like limited series, like a one season one shot and star in it. Go on. Britt Marling from the OA. Ah. I think she would do something so interesting with the Star Trek universe if you just gave her that sandbox to play in. Would be interesting, wouldn't it? Gates McFadden. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one, I mean, obviously, I, I don't think Star Trek is quite the like level of, of her. But I know when they were launching Disco, there was like a big campaign to make Angela Bassett the captain, obviously support that idea. Oh my gosh, that would have been so cool. Yeah. I also think that The Expanse has really elevated a lot of really fabulous actresses mm -hmm. of color. And I, I'm thinking specifically of, of Kara G, who plays drummer. Drama. Yes. But yes, I mean, like, you know, there's the actresses who, who are actors who play uh, Bobby and Naomi, like, there's just so many great actors on The Expanse, and it is wrapping up. So there's no reason they couldn't move them over some people over to Star Trek. I think that it's, uh, it really, um, you know, a little bit ahead of, of Discovery in the time frame showed some really cool potential of, of diverse casting. And we already have Ava Savrala. Yes. Exactly. We already have uh, Sharia Gadashalu in Star Trek universe, so let's just bring them all over. I say Archie Punjabi. I just think she's fabulous. Based on her comedic skills, I just don't think she's gotten enough of a wide range of work, which is very sad to me. Mm-hmm. So, Gina Torres. Ooh, yeah. Yes. Agreed. Gina Torres, but also India Moore. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Just really anybody. Anybody who wants to be on Star Trek, bring them in. Just get more people on Star Trek. <laughs> Just do it. It'll be great. Yeah, there's such a great pool of of talented, diverse people out in in TV right now. And I think I'm just I'm excited to see see who Star Trek could pull in. If I could add one more, Aliza yes. Pearl. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <absolutely>. Yep. <laughs> oh, my God. She's so cool. If you need a young guy in, yes. you know yes. who to call. <laughs> mm -hmm. But also all the rest of us as extras. Yeah. <laughs> our show, our rules. We get to plug ourselves. <laughs> so uh, next up, we had an email from Curator who talked about uh, two fandom friends, Klug Tiger and Seema. I hope I pronounced those right. Who said that uh, the, the three of them hit on a theme in Voyager, which is Belana Torres's body being used for purposes that aren't her own and or medical decisions being overruled. And Curator provided many examples that said, you know, it's difficult to think of another Trek character whose physical and medical choices over and over again are not his, her, or their own. An episode on this Bolana Torres theme with insight into the implications for women, Latinx partners, or performers, sorry, and so much more could be fascinating. So yeah, super cool. We've we've done a Bolana episode, but this is definitely a more specific look into it and just thought we could kind of take an initial look at this theme that was brought up. God, that could be a whole episode, couldn't it? <laughs> I mean, certainly, I do. I think we see some other examples in the Trek verse. We like we talked about, you know, mystical pregnancy is a good 
example of a woman's body being used in a way that's not their intention. So we get that in the child, you know, and we, we do see some women having less agency in their medical choices than others. But yeah, this is this is a really good point. There's like the face swappy episode, <laughs> the Vidian one split into two faces. Is that faces? Yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's an excellent point and lots of implications in terms of like just kind of the, the feminist analysis there. I mean, Kira occasionally gets it mm-hmm. with her, her whole like, you know, actual real life pregnancy being written in in kind of a weird way. And also the one where she gets kidnapped and turned into a Cardassian. Yep. Yes. Yeah, very true. Which is similar to Troy being kidnapped and turned into a Romulan. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, there's, I think sci-fi has a real fascination with I don't know it's maybe crossing into body horror in a lot of these cases but like what what kind of scary things can you do to women's bodies and it's it it does kind of I think you could say like mirror some of of the ways that like cis women have felt their bodies controlled by society and certainly cis women of color so yeah it's interesting uh, theme for sure yeah we also I feel like with Bellana, we see that kind of as an extension of uh, we had a blog post written back in 2017 by Larissa Maestro about Star Trek's tragic hybrids. And Mm. there's definitely something to be dug into there that I don't personally feel qualified to, but would love to hear more analysis on. Well, and Star Trek also has this problem of medical privacy, let's say, Mm -hmm. in general, where you know, your your doctor will talk to whoever wanders into the room about your medical condition, and everybody seems to be able to give their opinion, even if you're in the room, and like, it's a committee decision that's made for you. Did OSHA not make it into the future? <laughs> <laughs> no, apparently not by all the exploding consoles. The, the privacy and confidentiality, I understand, of, we, we understand, of course, you know, that a lot of this is for the plot of the television show, but it's still reads while watching it as like an individual and often a cis woman individual is not able to make her own choices about her own body. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that our Trill main characters were all either female or non-binary because they're people who they're making their own decisions, but they don't have total ownership of their bodies anymore. They're a host for the symbiont and there are a lot of rules imposed on them by the Trill Commission. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I don't know why we don't see more male Trill hosts except for like that one episode TNG. And like Stabby Stabby Mc Mc Oh yeah. Dax. <laughs> Stabby McDax. Is that the official name? Yeah. Um and the guy who and the guy who kidnaps Dax. Maybe it's just because we have a bunch of writers who aren't comfortable with writing male characters who don't have full body autonomy. <laughs> huh. Hmm. Also I just want to give a quick shout out to Curator because they're a fabulous fanfic author author. And yeah. you can see their stuff in like every issue of my fanzine Star Trek Quarterly. Nice. And a fountain of thoroughly intriguing topics and feedback. So uh, we we love uh, their feedback. Yeah. And I'll also just um, mention the episode where Bolana resists working with the Romulan hologram, who was the like essentially the like Dr. Mangala of mm. the or Cardassians. Yeah. Romulans? Cardassians. But. Yeah, because I think like that history of medical experimentation on communities of color and women of color, like if you look at the um, history of experimenting on women in the Caribbean and Latin America before the birth control pill became on the market for white women. And there's a lot of a lot of like really sketchy history there. We have a history of forced sterilization for Mm -hmm. Latin American women in California as recently as the 1970s, don't we? Yeah. Indigenous women, there's actually like present day cases of women who have said they were forced into, into or like pressured, coerced into um, being sterilized in like recent years still in uh, Canada. And women at ICE facilities who claim they were uh, subject to medical mm-hmm. practices they did not ask for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and yeah, and it goes beyond racialized communities too, and like gets into disability and, and, uh, intellectual uh, diversity, neurodiversity, um, like it's it's a whole thing. But I think it would be interesting to take a look back at that episode and see like, you know, what degree Bolana is is being empathized with in that situation versus like, kind of being pressured to, you know, t- I guess, 
you know, realize this is just a hologram and ultimately you have to put aside your your hatred to do what's right kind of thing. Does she, though? I Well, I'm saying I, it's been a while since I saw it, so I would be interested yeah. to take a look at it. And I'm in that light of, like, I mean, I don't think it's being sympathetic to, to the Cardassian dude. And at the end of the day, he does prove out to be super sketchy as a hologram, too. But if I remember correctly, part of her argument to to the doctor is that it's not just a hologram because he's been programmed mm-hmm. with all yeah. of the knowledge and research he gained by doing these horrific things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it's not just a hologram. It is an endorsement of his practices. Mm-hmm. So I think what we're probably saying is that it should not be the first time we've said it. <laughs> the doctor needs to check his privilege a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Anywho. All right, let's move on to the next question. Sarah, I don't know if you want to take a look at this one. You may want to paraphrase a little bit, but it's a a great question from Miriam. Sure. So Miriam is a student going back to school to study math and computer science. Yay, fellow math nerd. So she says that she's been filling out applications and writing essays. She's been doing a lot of thinking about the women scientists who have inspired her, both real and fictional and wanted to find a breakdown of female scientists in Trek and their specialties. So she came across an article which was about whether women were more interested in pursuing computer science if the classroom were decorated stereotypically geeky or in neutral decor. And she says the article claims that Star Trek fandom may have kept women from studying computer science. What do you think about this perspective? Stereotypically geek? What I want to know what their standard of stereotypically geeky is and further analysis of that. Yeah, so they put like Star Trek posters up and comics up and and basically, you know, had people take this computer science class um, versus like neutral decor like plants. And um, I think, you know, some folks have already done a bit of critical analysis on on this study. But first of all, it, it strikes me as definitely one of those studies that that like when the headline is that like Star Trek keeps women out of computer science, you have to be like, but is that what it really says? Is it that or establishing this space as being kind of a stereotypically geeky space, which is one that women have historically not always felt comfortable in? Exactly. Yeah, that it, it codes it as male because yeah. geek is still coded as a male space yeah. and, you know, less so than it used to be. But I think that that was some of the critique that I've read or, or listened to on on podcasts about this, this piece is that really what it might have been implying was that this is a room for where like you I mean, if if anything, you could also say that like, the it implies maybe that you need to learn this geek code, uh, this like social code and this fandom code versus like, you don't need to show that you understand plants to sit in a room with plants. So it could also just be like, hey, if this isn't your world, that if you can't, you know, say what you say who your favorite captain is you don't belong here so i don't think it's that star trek was keeping women out of science but i think that it's like you said grace like that that what does it mean to be in a geek space and this like expectation particularly for women that like you have to prove that you are a real geek it's making me think of the the lena thing which is there's a standard image that's used a lot in computing and image processing it's one of the earliest ones but it is a cropped image from like a nudie magazine of you know a topless woman so like it's still used because it's considered just part of the computing culture thing like oh she's she's a she's a mainstay we've used her since the beginning but anytime there are women in coding classes and then there's uh, multiple documentations of people being in like coding and computing classes where they'll say and here's Lena. She's the picture we always use. Don't look up the uncensored picture. And then everyone will instantly look up the uncensored picture. And of course, if you're not a straight dude in the room, that's going to be uncomfortable for you. It's also frustrating that this culture is believed to have always been because mm-hmm. it's not the case. Yeah, right? yeah. When computer science and programming began, it was, I'm going to speak in the binary here, it was women. It was women doing math and, and programming punch cards and writing code. Because it wasn't deemed important enough for male engineers to do. When Star Trek first came on the scene, it was considered a, a, a afternoon or evening TV show for bored housewives. And when the Beatles first started being popular, it was just teenage girls that liked it. They were just a boy band, yeah. 
So no one cared. When these things start being popular, when they're deemed important, that's when men take over the space. And this is a documented Mm -hmm. thing, and it happens over and over again. But I recently heard a term for this that I had not heard before, which I like love and hate at the same time, which is mentrification. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Gosh. Mm-hmm. But like that's what this is. Yeah. Computer science yeah. historically was dominated by women. Star Trek fandom mm-hmm. historically has been dominated by women. So yep. these the the whole conceit behind Star Trek keeps women out of computer science just makes me want to flip my desk. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's clearly what it is is it's geek gatekeeping yeah. that keeps women out of spaces that are decorated with geek stuff, I guess, or spaces that make you feel not safe or like your validity is going to be questioned because you're a woman. Which makes you have some questions about Wired, doesn't it? Yeah, it like is, and you know, obviously a whole other whack of problematic representations in the Big Bang Theory, but like it it creates this idea that you're going to be approached by these four like Big Bang Theory geek bros and judged for not liking something enough or having like the wrong opinion on something um, when all you want to do is talk about math and computers. Yeah. Yeah, And it's, it's absolutely true that you might walk into a space and someone who feels it's their right to be there might say see a poster on the wall and decide to quiz you on it if you mm-hmm. think or if they think that you don't belong there. And for anyone listening who who's done that or regularly does that, it's the worst. Don't do that. Don't quiz. It's super that. obnoxious. Yeah. It's even more subtle like I think like two years ago, there was a huge NASA event with tons of media. I forget which launch or landing or whatever it was, but one of the guys thought it was perfectly okay to show up in a Hawaiian shirt with naked ladies on it. Gross. And he thought nothing of it. Yeah, it's um, it's unfortunate. And, um, and also, I think that generally it, you know, that I think that uh, anytime you see a, like a, a news article about a study with a headline like that, I mean, or anytime you see a news article about a study, really, like, <laughs> yeah. I, I tend to, if I'm like, huh, this sounds interesting, and either I love it or it enrages me, I, like, try to find the study and, like, read what the actual abstract says. And, like, a lot of times these things are pushed out into media before they're even peer-reviewed. Yeah. So um, in this case, I didn't go back and look at the original, but I, you know, there's many, many examples of these types of things that, you know, like, they're being framed this way in the media to prompt people to have reactions a certain way. And yeah, I mean, I think the right reaction is to, or, you know, the the most constructive reaction is to say like, okay, so if this is true, what's really at play here? And is it just that like, Star Trek is impossible for women to get into? Obviously not. And I really, without having read the article, I really have to question what they mean by stereotypically geeky stuff. Because a lot of that stuff is pictures of scantily clad female characters. Right? Mm-hmm. I think that that in this case, it was, they were not going like pinup level stuff, but you definitely could like, you know, you could have had, um, I remember when I had the uh, the Star Trek um, magazine subscription when I was younger and like they would come with those posters that would fold out. Yep. Oh boy, centerfolds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had them all up, including, you know, Dax in her Rise of Swimsuit and stuff. But if I had not been a 10 year old Trekkie, that may have been weird to me. <laughs> Or, you know, objectifying if I had seen that in, like, my workspace. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently they, just just because it came up a couple times, so they had Star Trek posters, video games, and comic books um, versus coffee mugs, plants, and art posters. But, I mean, art also, like, you know, it doesn't describe, like, what was in the art. How do we know that the art, like, was inclusive? So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of questions. And basically, they asked 215 students. Again, you always run into problems when a study is only college students, because you're automatically tending to sample people that are predominant, like likely to be more economically privileged Mm -hmm. and and tend to be more white. 215 students were asked to imagine they were joining either a geekily decorated or a neutrally decorated company after graduation. So it was like, which environment would you prefer to work in? And and women preferred the non-geeky space and men didn't have any um, notable preference. What makes you wonder also, is there a level of perceived professionalism there? Like, yeah. Like, oh, this is just standard decor. Okay. This is a office space versus with the pop culture stuff it's seen as being a lot more casual. I think there might also be a measure of 
you know, oh, this this office space is decorated like a comic book shop. Well, yeah. how have yeah. I been treated in comic book? Yeah, shops? exactly. Oh my gosh, I had a guy in a comic book store who was the owner. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm looking for Ms. Marvel. And he's like, you know that Captain Marvel and Ms. Marvel are different things, right? And I'm like, yes, I'm looking for Ms. Marvel. Good <laughs> Lord. Oh, my God. Yes, I know they're both women. That's insufferable. <laughs> uh, yeah, so fair. Also, I mean, as we talked about in the recent episode on Trek Tech, there's a well-documented history of Star Trek inspiring women scientists. Yeah. So I think the point that this uh, that Miriam makes in in this email to us is that this seems very counterintuitive because we know that Star Trek also has inspired a lot of women in STEM. And the study is not attempting to like tease that out at all. I had a guy ask me if I got my Leia tattoo. A guy at a comic book shop asked me if I got my Leia tattoo for my boyfriend. Oh my god. <laughs> no. Oh, stab. In, in so many ways, no. <laughs> Side question. Does anyone else's local comic book shop just have a dude who hangs out there, who doesn't work there, who doesn't have any business there, but is just kind of there to nonstop talk at people in there? Ugh. Yeah, I've encountered that. I've also encountered a lot of comic book stores where the guys who work there don't even seem like they like they're just like, oh, a woman. Yeah, like they aren't mm-hmm. interested in engaging you in conversation, but they are super interested in conversations with any yeah. guy that walks yeah, in. I've definitely and had that. there's definitely this like implied the whole like fake geek girl assumption. It's super fun to try and get help from somebody at the front desk when they're just actively ignoring you. Especially if you're super shy in person like I am. Yeah, or you feel like they're going to judge you for reading like an all-ages comic or for something that they they consider like not serious enough. This is why I just pick up my holds and leave. (laughs) I'm just remembering a point when I got a bunch, I had like a stack of Transformers comics and the guy at the front counter said, oh, girls don't usually like this stuff. And I was like, I'm a girl and I'm getting a stack of it. So I was at a Comic-Con and I was trying to find the X-Men TNG crossover comic and I went booth to oh booth to booth and all these old white guys were so rude and condescending to me until finally I found a booth with like young guys in it and they're like yes we have that comic we also have the X-Men TOS crossover would you like that too I'm like yes thank you for being nice to me oh the one with the Dr. McCoy what it's <laughs> great <laughs> yeah Ugh. Man. Anyway, thank you very much for the excellent question, Miriam. I hope that we answered a little bit in addition to having a a good rant about the gross gatekeeping that can (laughs) exist in some geek spaces. Um, so next up, we have a question from Vanessa via Patreon. So, Sue, do you want to take that? Yeah. So, uh, Vanessa wrote in response to our episode with Blair Amani on uh, women religious leaders in Trek and said, I appreciate you all wanting to see positive versions of religion in Star Trek, and I'm fine with that as well. However, as a woman in my mid-40s, I absolutely appreciate and still feel it not only necessary, but extremely contemporary to also shine that light on the corruption and corrosive parts of religion. Christianity has stripped people of their cultural identities the world over through colonization. Not only that, I can't find any organized religion that isn't rooted in patriarchy. Yes, even Buddhism. There are countless studies of the subjugation of women in all religions, and so many ridiculous wars have been fought in its name. So I think as feminists, we can also be happy when Star Trek interrogates dogmatic beliefs and shines light on power and corruption from religion. I think it's important as well to show the worst sides of religion as well as the best, and not to confuse culture and religion. They absolutely can be independent of one another. Woo! So there's a lot here. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, this was one that I, I really wanted us to to discuss on the mailbag. Yeah, you're right. Like, religion has caused a lot of problems. Religion has done a lot of harm. And when I say religion, I mean, like, organized religion. I think on a individual case-by-case basis for a person, religion can be harmful, but it also can be beneficial, right? A lot of different people have faiths. A lot of people have different faiths. And it's, yeah, it's it can be difficult when you know that your faith or perhaps the the capital R religion that your faith is a part of um, has been a part or led the charge in horrific things in the past. But does it completely discount what positive impact it might have on you as an individual? I mean, I think that's for each person themselves to determine. 
and what I, I, I can only speak for myself in this part, but wanting to see positive versions of religion in Star Trek, again, for me, that's as an individual. I don't want to see mm. or necessarily need to see a service of different kinds of religion. But if we can see that different people are practicing different faiths in the Star Trek universe, I think that is very positive. And, you know, one yeah. of those options can be no faith, right? And I, I think Star Trek does often shine a light on on the corruption of many religions and the corruption of religious leaders, as we, we talked about in that episode. Hello, Landry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you'll definitely find different individual perspectives across our crew. But I think that, like, I mean, I'm personally an atheist, but when I was engaging in skeptics circles, I was really turned off by the version of atheism humanism i it's not even, i wouldn't call it humanism the like dawkins version atheism that is like disrespect everyone's individual beliefs as dogma basically yeah and uh like write off a whole bunch of people's agency as like they can't possibly understand because they're oppressed and i think that that in its own way that is another form of dogma and uh, so i definitely like gravitated more towards humanist circles that had a better understanding of like, I don't want, I want to minimize the influence of religion in, on like the public sphere for the sake of equality and, and equal treatment by the state. But if individual people are, are practicing their own beliefs in a way that they find personally helpful and that like largely isn't harming others, then that's cool. Um, so that's, that's where I personally stand. But like, I know, it's obviously like religion is a complex and divisive and political uh, subject in a lot of uh, circles. So I think I hope that we strike like an okay balance between that, like not pretending that there has never been any harm associated with, with religion, but also that it's challenging when Star Trek leans so hard as it did in the earlier series, less so now, um, into this idea that like a rational future um, of like more advanced humans means like leaving all this silly superstition behind. Yeah, well put. I mean, my my personal faith is very complicated for me, but I was raised by a doctor of theology, as I probably said on that episode. But one of the things I appreciated in my upbringing was that even though, you know, my dad was the pastor, one of the things that we were always told was to question everything, question traditions, question ceremony, question the, well, this is the way it's always been done, right? And I think that I internalized that and perhaps a bit uh, too much for my my family's liking, <laughs> because, you know, that that questioning has led me farther away from the very conservative part of religion that I was brought up in. And I, I think that is where where that sort of thing can lead you, where where the individualism in in your faith or in a faith can come into play, right? I certainly don't condone by any means all of the things that that were done in the name of Christianity before I came along. It is up to me as an individual to decide what I believe and what I want to incorporate into my life, if anything. I just think this question is kind of funny because they seem to think we went too easy on religion and Star Trek, but I was on that show and all I remember talking about is how shitty religious leaders were, like Kaiwen yeah. and Ardra. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure what nice and things we said. As pointed out in the comment, right, there's a difference between culture and religion, right. although they can yep. influence each other. In in my opinion, there is also a difference between faith and religious dogma and institutional religion. Yep. Yes, that's definitely how I feel. And that's definitely part of my religious experience. Yeah. And actually, one of the, the authors I've been reading recently is John Gray, who's a philosophy professor who's written a lot about different types of atheism. And there is... Also, the type that like can find values in the different philosophies and like views them more as like different philo philosophical schools mm -hmm. versus you know looking 
at like the Catholic Church. Yeah. I think it's like it's a really rich area and it's it's hard to really like you could definitely write a book about it. I actually think there are books about star religion oh, in yeah. Star Trek. <laughs> the one last thing on this discussion before we I think probably have to move on is that this is not an invitation to anyone to go religion bashing in the comments. <laughs> Uh, any particular religion or or religion in general, like it's it's totally cool to to say. Um, I think express respectfully, like like um, Vanessa did mm-hmm. the the like very valid issues with with history and you know present day harm. But yeah, not going to tolerate the Dawkins stuff, folks. Not in our comments. Not in person. Mm-mm. Yes. So we also had a question from Daniel about the Bechdel test. And I could go on about this for a, a long time. But um, the question was basically, hey, will you also Bechdel test Star Trek, but about race? So we've definitely, t- I, I think probably in a previous mailbag, have talked about the pros and cons of the Bechdel test. It's a really, really low bar. It doesn't necessarily indicate feminism in a show. It's mostly valuable because it's really, really easy to apply. And because it's such a low bar, it's striking when it's not achieved. So the challenge is that you can't really just straight up apply it to race because, especially in Star Trek, you run into situations where are you talking about alien race or human races or like some combination of the two there's there's cases where you have characters that are like so heavily covered in alien makeup that like does that person read as racialized and is it fair because the actor was of color to read it as read that person as racialized and i think that all of those are like important discussions to have but also do you say like that it's just Anytime two people of color talk about someone who's not a white person, like it just doesn't have quite, like it doesn't just kind of neatly translate over. Luckily, many folks have suggested alternate tests that are better at taking into race into account. So in the show notes, um, I'll post a link to an article at the 538 um, that includes a bunch of suggestions for how to evaluate. It's like basically called moving beyond the Bechdel test or, or the next Bechdel test. And uh, it suggests ways of looking at women behind the scenes, um, but it also looks at race. So there's one by uh, Lena Waithe um, from, you know, the, uh, a writer for Master of None, who suggests a test that a movie passes if there's a Black woman in the work who's in a position of power and a healthy relationship. There's a test if they're uh, called the Co-Test by Naomi Co from Dear White People, who suggests a movie passes if there's a non-white female identifying person in the film who speaks in five or more scenes and speaks English. So there's a whole bunch of different ideas in there, I think, they're all super interesting and think it would be a great project for, for someone to take on. It's just warning. It's a lot of work. Yep. And the idea of turning the Bechdel test into a race test isn't a new idea. It was discussed mm-hmm. calling it the DuVernay test after Ava DuVernay, but yeah. it isn't really like – it isn't fully defined. Yeah. I think that what you need to do is you need to start with an understanding of – where some of the gaps are, because that's, I mean, the Bechdel test started as a joke, but it also like, you know, in a comic strip, but it also started because it was acknowledged that you didn't often see women talking to other women about something other than a man. So you need to come up with like, what is the gap that you're trying to identify in film and like build the test around those problems. And I think that's what some of these alternatives do. All right. So this one is like rapid fire questions. Yes. Okay, Natalie has three quick questions. So I'll read one. Rapid fire. Yeah. Yep. Okay, first question. The episodes that make you cry. Ha- half a life. Uh, the TNG one with Loxana and Dr. Timison. Yep. Half a life. Visitor where we see old Jake uh-huh. still mourning his dad. Still all good things for me. Time's Orphan and the finale of Discovery season one. Mm. The yeah. very last shot. That one made me lose my shit. Okay, next question. What is your opinion on Children of Time? Yeah, this was a uh, a good point that we may not be able to answer that quickly. But basically, um, Natalie was saying Odo's actions are presented as romantic, but kind of awful. Agreed. Yeah. Like, but they're actually kind of awful. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. He, like, basically condemns a bunch of people to death <laughs> so that Kira won't die. It's definitely a needs of the one 
very supersede the needs of the many that had no say in the situation. <laughs> needs of the primary character of the show supersede any possible theoretical characters. Yep. Mm. Okay, yeah. and last one. What is your favorite theme song of all the series? I got faith. No, um, <laughs> probably, honestly, uh, DS9. Yeah. I'm going to say the Discovery theme just gets me fucking pi- pumped. <laughs> dun, 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 I'm going Lower Decks. Okay. Yeah, Lower Decks is a good one. Yeah, it's like... It's got all of the fanfare of the TNG theme, but it just, it's like a little bit maybe pithier and more modern. (laughs) Always remind, it makes me think of the Galaxy Quest theme. Yes. (laughs) It really does. Mm -hmm. I'm actually going to go with a movie and say First Contact. Nice. Yeah. There is a very cool, cool, this made it less quick. I'm sorry. I'm going to forget the name of the game, but there is a, a like overlay for a game that has a soundtrack that weaves all of the theme songs together so there's no break in them and like the different phrases just kind of move between each other and again our our gm plays it for our star trek adventures game all the time which is why i even know about it but it is phenomenal and i will find out what it is and put it in the show notes (laughs) okay amazing So um, we have uh, two questions to wrap things off that are somewhat related. So just tie them together. Uh, Bill asks about suggestions that we have for media to consume that would help him become a better feminist slash ally. Says, uh, you know, I've listened to a few Trek podcasts in the past, but wanted something to supplement those and found your amazing show. It gave me a new lens to view my favorite show through. And you've also challenged me to update some of my worldviews. So Thank you for that very nice note and looking for any suggestions to become a better feminist slash ally. Can we just put like a link to a Google Drive full of (laughs) stuff or? There are many, 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 many options. Yeah. I mean, it's like, where do you, where do you even start? Uh, Our blog, we have a blog uh, that has lots of Star Trek stuff. Generally for, for kind of like a feminist 101 perspective, I generally recommend Bell Hooks Feminism is for Everybody. It does a good job at, at explaining intersectionality and why feminism is important and not about, you know, hating men or burning your bras or some things like that. It's, uh, it's like super basic. Um, so that's, I like something I would recommend for, for people who are just kind of just starting out on, on feminist theory. I have to admit that I have not been to the website frequently in, in a few years. But I used to always recommend everyday feminism to people, especially if there was a specific topic they were mm-hmm. looking for mo- more information on. But I would also recommend Jesse Gender's channel on YouTube. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, definitely. It's great. Friend of the show and just a good channel. Yeah, there's so much stuff. And there's also a lot of other, you know, I would call them like almost our informal sister podcasts. Mm-hmm on like there's uh, the Verity podcast on, on that's like women on Doctor Who. There's other podcasts that are are women and uh, people of diverse backgrounds talking about Star Trek. So there's there's a lot more out there in the Star Trek podcast sphere as well. Oh yeah, there was that blog post we did back in January. It's called Infinite Podcasts and Infinite Combinations and it's got a list of diverse podcasts you can check out. Awesome. And then we have another question asking for recommendations from Neil. And I believe that this was about our, um, we did a um, panel with Roddenberry hosts at Last Star Trek Las Vegas, which was about how do we get to the Star Trek future from here? And, you know, our our crew talked about um, universal education and universal health care and universal basic income. So Neil asks, can you recommend any reading material, whether Star Trek focused or not, that outlines practical ways society could work towards that better future? And again, this is like big question because there are many, many, many books yeah. <laughs> um, that look at this type of thing. My very favorite book of all time is called Woman on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy. And it has mm. this amazing future that's inclusive it's equitable it's non-capitalist and this book was written in the 70s but it's got stuff in it like non-gendered pronouns 
it was way ahead of its time. And I read this when I was like 19 years old. And this is like 90% of why my politics are so left, like that and, <laughs> that and Star Trek. But yeah, Woman on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy. It's wonderful. I thought you said why your podcast or why your politics are so lit. And I'm like, yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I mean, if if you're looking for like policy stuff, like a practical, like, how do we get people to enact these policies that I can't give you. But like, there are lots of analyses of, of science fiction and Star Trek in particular, about how those systems would work that are out there. I mean, you get into to certain parts of, of Trek fandom on the internet, and you can't throw a rock without hitting one. Yeah, I I would suggest okay, so first of all, one interesting trek related book is Trekonomics um, by Manu Sadia, which is more about like what would you need economically to create a trek type society and it talks a lot about like scarcity. Um but it does a good job of kind of integrating like what are some of the barriers to that that we have in our society today. I would also suggest you know, yeah, so I've, I mean, I've, I have a fair number of resources that are about kind of like political organizing and things like that. So there's uh, a good, really short book called Don't Think of an Elephant by uh, George Lakoff that's about political communications and like how we, uh, like how progressive movements tend to communicate about themselves in a way that is really, abstract and um, not necessarily like more academic-y and not kind of like necessarily hitting people right in the feels and how we can better work our language to connect with people that are facing oppression in order to do community organizing. Yeah, and like tons of resources on community organizing. I feel like it's, it's hard, you know, obviously, if we had all the solutions for how we get to that better future, like we would probably not be recording this podcast today. <laughs> um, but um, it's about a lot of different conversations and would definitely re- recommend just looking up like reading lists on community organizing or on, um, you know, a- aspects that you're particularly passionate about. If there's a particular issue like healthcare or incarceration or mental health or racism, you can find good reading lists online. And uh, there's you know, great podcasts. And yeah, sorry, it's just it's almost like too overwhelming a question. (laughs) But yeah, we'll try, you know what, how about we say we will try to come up with a couple of things for our show notes this time to put on our website. Um, If we think of anything, it will not be the comprehensive list, but encourage you to go out there and do some research. Check out your local library. I will always plug local libraries. Librarians are great at helping people find the best things to read on different topics. That's that's their whole deal. But do so safely and make sure you're following all of their safety guidelines. Right now, ours are not open. So like it's phoning people anyway. (laughs) Um, So I'm going on that. But yes, safely engage your local librarians. I also didn't mean to imply they don't do anything else. They're just specifically trained to do yeah. that. Obviously love librarians. So yeah, check out check out the resources that are available to, to you to uh, learn more. And there is, there is much reading and learning to be had out there. One podcast that I do really want to recommend is called Politically Reactive with Hari Kondabalu and um, W. Kamal Bell. One of the things that it does really well, in addition to having many, many, many amazing guests on that show from lots of different backgrounds is that they're really good at acknowledging also the areas where they still have to learn more and then inviting guests on to address those. So like they had a guest on earlier in the year who made kind of like an offhanded comment about asexuality and then they didn't like call the person out on it at the time. So later in the season, they came back and they had um, a host um, f- who was asexual and was able to like talk about it really knowledgeably and like explain to them and the listeners and like educate them on the show. Um, so I think that it, it is a really powerful example that doesn't just teach you as the audience about those issues, but it's like you're learning along with the, the hosts. Okay, so that's about all the time we have for today. And We love to hear from you. If you would like to send us something to be in one of these future episodes, hopefully in what will be the after times. (laughs) A year or so from now. (laughs) Yeah, a year or so from now. Someday. You you can email us at crew at women at warp.com or you can reach out to us on our socials channels and also on our website. 
Sue, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on tweeters at Spaltor, S-P-A-L-T-O-R. What about you, Grace? You can find me on Twitter at BoneCrusherJank and also just reeling from still some of the conversational topics we've been given today. <laughs> and Sarah? You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Miyoko, S-A-R-A-H, Amazon Mary, I-Y-O-K-O. Or you can find my fanzine, Star Trek Quarterly, on Facebook. Nice. And I'm on Twitter at J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin. And to learn more about our show or to contact us, uh, womenatwork.com, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those are at Women at Work. And email us, as I said, at crew at womenatwork.com. So that's that's all the ways you can get in touch with us. And for more Roddenberry podcasts, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.